Let's pray and ask God for his help. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great judge and saviour. We thank you that in him we have all we need uh, as a saviour and as a Lord forever. We pray that as we look now at these judges and saviours in the time of judges, that you help us to see all the more how great Jesus is and that you will challenge us as we reflect on their failures. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It doesn't happen very often in my life. Maybe if there's a jar that needs opening or a spider or mouse that has to be dealt with. But just very occasionally I'll hear the joyful question, is there a man in the house? As I say, it doesn't happen very often, but just occasionally. As we've seen so far in this book of Judges, this period of history, it went round and round in cycles. So you remember the cycle, Israel disobey God and worship idols, and so God hands them over to their enemies until they cry out to him. In response, God raises up a judge. They follow God for as long as the judge is alive, but then it goes back to the beginning of the cycle. Israel forget about God, they worship idols, and, and, and so it goes around and around. Do you remember how many times we saw the cycle last week? So three times, can you remember their names? Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. Shamgar. Okay, we saw it three times last week. This week we see it happen one more time. But this week there's a terrible problem. God is ready to raise up a rescuer for Israel. In fact, he's asked somebody to be the rescuer. But there's no man in the house, so to speak. There is no man willing to step up and do the job. Now, as chapter 4 begins, we see the classic introduction to our next cycle. So Israel do evil. After Ehud's died, God hands them over to some people with iron chariots, ancient equivalent of weapons of mass destruction, until the Israelites cry out for help. Judges, chapter 4 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Judges, chapter 4 and verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now, there were plenty of men in Israel at the time who should have stepped up and taken leadership. In fact, we'll see in the song later on, 40,000 of them. But none of them will do it. They are all too scared of Sisera to put their hands up. A bit like the situation in Mexico at the moment. You've heard about the situation in Mexico at the moment. You become a police commissioner, someone kills you. And so there's this... I think she's 19 years old or something, this girl who stepped up to be the the police commissioner in Mexico. Good honour. Same here. No man will do the job. So it's left to a lady by the name of Deborah. She's a prophetess, that is, God speaks through her, and people come to her to get God's verdict on their disputes. Verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Bet palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Now God reveals to Deborah that he's been trying to raise up a bloke called Barak. He's told Barak to uh, get some men together and fight Sisera but Barak hasn't done it and so Deborah has to uh, give Barak a bit of a a prod from God so to speak. Maybe she needs to get Shamgar's cattle cattle prod or something like that and give Barak a bit of a a prod from God. Verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Now, let me give you a literal translation of this, because it it reveals something. Literally, she says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you 
Okay? Barak's already heard this from God. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. God's command, perfectly clear. But have a listen to Barak's response. I mean, I can't get my 10-year-old to hold my hand anymore, but he won't go unless his hand is held. Verse 8. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Deborah says, Right, oh, you pathetic wimp. I'll hold your hand for you. But because you're such a wuss, you won't get the glory in this battle. It'll go to a woman. Verse 9. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honour will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Uh, Verse 11, we meet Heba. He, or rather his wife, will become significant later on. And then we follow Barak. He heads off to Mount Tabor like he was told. Sisera comes with his chariots to the Kishon River, just like God says. And again, Deborah gets Shamgar's cattle prod and gives Barak a prod. She says, Sisera's at the Kishon River. It's exactly where God said he would defeat him. Get moving. Verse 12. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. Finally, Barak's got his act together. And then in like two words, God wins victory. 900 chariots, 20 years of oppression. It's no struggle, it's no match for God. Verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Agoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. All right, Sisera runs away to where Heber the Kenite was, the bloke we met back in verse 11, and he goes to hide out in the tent of Heber's wife, Jael. Now, like many blokes with their cars, uh, you get this bloke out of his chariot and he's not so tough anymore. In fact, he's pathetic, right? But, but, but Jael, Jael comforts Sisera as he kind of flutters like a leaf and she takes him in, verse 17. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering on him. Sisera's got his blankie. Now he wants a drinky. So Jael gives him some milk and cookies and tucks him in. No doubt he wanted a lullaby as well. Verse 19. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Now at this point, Sisera asks Jael to hide him. Unfortunately, the NIV doesn't show you the, just the beautiful irony in this. In verse 20 of the NIV, stand in the doorway of the tent, verse 20, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. Let me give you a literal translation. Sisera says, If a man comes by and and asks you, is there a man in here, say no. 
Okay, the irony is beautiful. Because the man who's coming by, well, I guess by now he's fit to be called a man. Stepped up to the plate, met at his handheld, but he stepped up. But there's certainly no man in that tent. Just baby Sisera with his milk and cookies and his blankie. So here's Sisera, tucked up in bed, thumb in his mouth, feeling safe at last. Or so he thinks. But remember what God has said. Because Barak was such a wuss, he's going to hand Sisera over to a woman. And so Jael gets stuck into some real women's work. She kills Sisera and takes Barak's glory. And that spells the beginning of the end for King Jabin of Canaan and his oppression of God's people. Verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. On that day God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. Okay, there it is, another judge story, plenty of gore, plenty of political correctness. But, but this one's quite unique. This one is unique because this story turns out to be a musical. As if we needed any more proof that all the men were wimps. This one turns out to be a musical. So chapter 5, we break out into song. Now, the story is told again in song and it starts off by saying what uh, women throughout the ages have always been saying. Praise God when men will step up and do what God says. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Have a look with me. Chapter 5, verse 2. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Verses 3 to 5 is, is praise to God for his great power. He marches out in battle and like uh, with the Egyptians, uh, the whole earth trembles before him. Then from verse 6 we think about the situation before the men stepped up. Before Deborah gave them this kick in the pants, they were worshipping new gods, verse 8. And things were terrible. It wasn't safe to travel the roads. Village life was finished. Everyone lived in fear. And not one of the 40,000 men in Israel had the guts to pick up a weapon. Pick it up in verse 7. Verse 7. Village life in Israel ceased. Ceased until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. But now again the song says, Praise God when men will work up the guts to do what God says. Verse 9, My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. That brings us to the middle section of the song. And the middle section is all about uh, God's call to Israel to fight to the different tribes. And it talks about who did and who didn't step up. Now back in the narrative section it says that uh, uh, Barak called on Zebulun and Naphtali. But apparently the call went much wider than that. But as the song says, not everybody was willing to do it. So verse 12 you see that Barak was willing. He stepped up. Verses 13 to 15 you'll see so did the tribes of Ephraim. And uh, Benjamin and Zebulun and Issachar, they, they all got moving. But not every tribe had the guts to join Barak. Some of them stayed home. Near the end of verse 15, I am now near the end of verse 15, and just hear the irony dripping again. 
in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The call to battle was there and all these tribes, they were too scared. Plenty of heart searching, not a lot of action. They're too busy doing their crocheting or whatever other manly activity they're doing to get in and do what God says. Uh, Verses 19 to 27, the story of the battle is told again. We hear in wonderful poetic imagery of God's great power as he fights with stars and mighty horses and and, and rivers. And uh, Then verses 24 to 27, Jael gets her praise. She gets the glory. That would have been barracks if he weren't such a wimp. And then from verses 28 to 30, just to confirm the idea that Sisera really was a mummy's boy, we get a picture of his mum waiting for Sisera to come home. You see verse 28, through the window peers Sisera's mummy. Apparently he still lived with his mum. And uh, here she is looking through the window. Where's my sissy? Why is he late? He must be choosing some pretty clothes and some girls to rape. When's Sissy coming home? He's not coming home because he's dead. Dead with a stake through his head. And so may it be, says the song, for all God's enemies. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace 40 years. All right, there it is. In story and in song. A few important themes to notice. Uh, Did you notice God's total power and control? I mean, who is it that hands Israel over to Jabin? It's God. Who is it that rescues them after 20 years of oppression and 900 iron chariots with just a couple of words? It's God. And how does God do it? Well, so that all the glory goes to him, he uses the weak and despised, even a non-Jewish woman like Jael. I reckon there's a shadow of the good news about Jesus in that, don't you? As God chooses the lowly things of this world, the weak things of this world, to save his people. So there's surely a shadow of the time when the mighty God will save the world through a crucified carpenter. Interesting theme. Did you notice also the theme of God's enemies being a laughing stock? Uh, like we saw last week with you know, Jabba the Hutt and all of the other blokes. Uh, um, here, is, here is big, tough Sisera with his 900 iron chariots. He's oppressed Israel for 20 years. God, God finishes with him and you see him for who he is. He's a sissy mummy's boy killed by a girl while he's tucked up in his blankie with his Milo. That will be the fate of all God's enemies. Uh, They might seem tough now while they shake their fists at God, but when Jesus comes back, they're not going to look so tough. When Jesus comes back, we'll see how tough they really are. People who oppose God, people think they can oppose God, God just laughs at them. A couple of interesting themes. But, but I want to pick up on one big theme of the story. And that is the theme, I'm sure you've got it from the way I've explained it, the theme of men who won't step up to the mark. 
You see that theme right through both the story and the song. Barak won't do what God says without Deborah holding his hand, so he misses out on the glory. Or in the song, over and over again, praise God when men will step up and take a lead. Friends, the thing I want to say is this. The first thing I want to say is this. Praise God that we follow a man who stepped up to the mark. Praise God that we follow a real man, a brave man. You see it over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus faces up to Satan, mano a mano, or however you say it, all right? Man on man, so to speak. He faces temptation, he conquers. Or time and time again, the disciples are cowering in fear in the boat, and Jesus stands up and he commands the wind and the waves. He's the only one with any guts. There in that garden of Gethsemane, Jesus alone is praying while the others are tucked up in their blankies sleeping. There before Pilate, Jesus stands up and he's, he makes the good confession. Alone. Brave. Time and again, until alone, Jesus goes to the cross. Until alone, Jesus bears our sin and judgment for all of our failure and wimpishness and cowardice and sloth and wrong priorities. Praise God for Jesus, a man who isn't a mummy's boy. Praise God for a man who doesn't need a woman to hold his hand for him to serve God. Praise God for a man with the guts to be a man. As we read this story of Barak, we should praise God for Jesus. But it should also make us ask ourselves a question. Is our church like Israel at the time of Barak and Deborah? Is our church like Israel at the time of Barak and Deborah? Are we a church where the men are wimps and the women are left to carry the can? Now, of course, we men, we are not being called to go and kill anyone anymore. That's all gone now with Jesus, praise God. But we are called to step up and lead. Now, I haven't got a lot of time to explain this. I'm just going to say it the way it is, politically incorrect as it is. We are called to step up and take a lead. We are called to lead our families. The Bible says that the husband is the head of the family. The husband will carry the can. Like Christ is the head of the church, we are to love our wives and we are to bring up our children in the training and discipline of the Lord. That requires initiative. It requires leadership. We are also called to lead in our churches. Back in the Ephesian church in the Bible, the men were hopeless. Paul writes, they don't know what they're talking about. Literal translation. Uh, meanwhile, religion in Ephesus was very much a women's thing. They, the Ephesians worshipped the goddess Artemis, Diana. She was a hunter and mistress of the animals and goddess of the moon. Religion was women's business in Ephesus. And, and it was perfectly clear to the Ephesian women that they could do a better job of teaching and running the church than these hopeless blokes. I think probably Timothy could see that as well. But God says through Paul, no. He says the men need to step up to the plate and do what I've called them to do. They need to teach and look after the church. The ladies should listen and learn without arguing or trying to take over. On your outline again, I'm sorry it's not politically correct, but here is God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 2. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Men, God calls you to step up and take a lead in your church, in your family, 
Now, if we won't do it, there are plenty of faithful Deborahs who can, but it can never be anything but a sign of our failure. You see a church that is led by women, and I've been in churches like this, it can never be anything but a sign of the failure of the men, and it is the beginning of death throes of a church. Men are called to be leaders for God, to be initiative takers, to serve their families and churches, to further God's kingdom in this world. But this world, it seems, is full of barracks. We've seen it time and time again in our mission presentations, haven't we? What was Narada's number one prayer point? That men would step up and do ministry in Japan. What was Chandra's number one prayer point? That men would step up and do ministry in Ecuador. For every faithful Christian man who does mission work, there are a dozen faithful Debras. I want to quote to you now from a sermon by a bloke called Mark Driscoll. It's a sermon that's given, uh, that was given to pastors, uh, a sermon that I listened to in a conference for pastors. And uh, he says that a minister's highest priority must be Jesus. But then he talks about the second priority, and he says this. I'm quoting from him, Mark Driscoll. What's the second priority for pastors? Where should you focus your time, energy, attention? Men. This is the weakness of the church. The focus has not been on men. The issue on the table is will you have the courage to go after your men? The men are the issue. If you get the men, you win the war. If you lose the men, you lose the war. Most of your ministry is spent trying to make up for the lack, the deficiency, the ineffectiveness of men. Now you say, we need a big women's ministry. We need husbands. We need a big children's ministry. We need fathers. You say, the women and children don't know their Bibles. Well, apparently their husband and father hasn't taught them. The question is, can you gather? Can you compel? Can you contend with men? Men must be the focus of your ministry. So you say, we're having a leadership crisis. You need men. We don't have enough money. It's in the pockets of the men. The children are acting up. Well, that's because their father doesn't know what to do with the gospel and a kid. The next time you take attendance, don't just take attendance. Count the men and the women. And if you want to change the world, get those men on mission with Jesus. He's always clear, isn't he? Like Driscoll? Well, listen to this quote from Phil Campbell. We're in a mess, I reckon, if Christianity becomes a female hobby. The country town we lived in, you'd see it at funerals. There'd always be a bunch of the tough guys who, when the service started, wouldn't go into the church. They'd stand round the tree outside in their dark glasses because church was woman stuff. And it's only that way because a generation of Christian men let it go that way. How are we going here at Chatswood? Are we a church like Israel in Barak's time. Now, the other day when Barry um, stood up to respond to his eulogy, it's something you won't see every day and hopefully you won't see it at the average funeral, but Barry was able to stand up and respond to his eulogy and uh, did, did you notice what he said? He said one of the things that he's really pleased about is the number of godly men who are now part of our church and, and he is right and praise God we are so blessed 
to have some faithful, godly men. Men who are stepping up and showing some initiative. Men who are taking on leadership. Apparently 15, 20 years ago it was like six to one women to men in this church. But I do want to have just a bit of a go at our men. Now I realise this is not the ideal context with ladies in here with us. You're on your own, I'd go much harder. And, And Ladies, I'm going to say something um, very brief but very important uh, to you at the end about what I'm saying here. But this week I've been doing some research. Here are some figures from our latest prayer diary. There are 187 adults on our last prayer diary. According to my count, 187. Of that, 119 are women and 68 are men. It's around about two-thirds women in our church. Now, praise God for all you faithful Debras. I'm not whinging about you. I'm not whinging about the people who are here. Praise God for men and women who are here. But that's not a lot of men, is it? And even with the men we do have, I wonder how many are being dragged along by their wives. You know the TV show The Simpsons? It's always Marge who wants to go to church. Homer would rather stay home and watch TV. I wonder how much that's happening here. I then went through attendance at Bible study. Of our 119 women, 74 attend Bible study regularly. It's nearly two-thirds of you. But of our 68 men, only 33 attend Bible study regularly, less than half. Uh, Yesterday we were in the small hall with our budget subcommittee and we were trying to set our budget for next year and there was all kinds of hand-wringing. Because it doesn't look like we're going to meet budget uh, this year. We're a long way behind, as you can see from the back of your order of service. We agonised. How can we make the figures meet? What, what ministries do we need to cut? And we've cut some ministries that hurt me. <laughs> Not me, but things that I really wanted us to keep going, we've had to cut. But here's the fact. There are 68 men in our church. You put those 68 men together and we would easily earn more than $7 million per annum. If just the men in our church were committed enough to God to give 5% of their income, that is half what the Old Testament requires, 5% of their income, we would have a budget surplus. And that is without one woman giving one cent in our church. We're sitting there stressing and worrying about where the money is to run our church. I know exactly where it is. Like Mark Driscoll says, it's in the pockets of the men. What about Mission Day coming up? What's going to happen with us men? Well, let me tell you the two most common scenarios. Scenario one. After two months of being told every single week about Mission Day, you'll have forgotten all about it. On the day, you'll pull out your wallet and chuck in a token 20. Or scenario number two, your wife runs the finances and you haven't got the faintest idea how much money will go to Mission Day. Bet the same sort of thing's going to happen at our Eat with a Neighbour that's coming up. The faithful Debras will invite their friends while the barracks do nothing. Sit on the sidelines and barrack. I wonder what's happening in our families. I wonder who is reading the Bible and praying with the children. I wonder who is taking a lead. I wonder how many men are taking out time to love their wives and lead their children. I wonder how many men are taking enough time off work, and let's face it, you do way more than you need to do, are taking enough time off work to be able to set an example and genuinely disciple their families. Friends, the more I think about this stuff, the more I, I've got to say I'm worried. 
So here's my question. Now, here's God's question from Judges 4 to 5. It's a question that I've got to say I love to hear at home. It kind of, it, uh, it, 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 sort of, it, it thrills me. Here's the question. Is there a man in the house? Is there a man in here with the guts to step up and be the leader God has called you to be? To be one of the princes and warriors that, are, that God is praised for in Judges 5. Is there a man in here with the guts to be a faithful servant leader of your family? Is there a man in here with the guts to be a faithful servant leader of our church? Is there a man in here who can take some initiative without needing his hand held? I, I praise God for the many faithful Deborahs in our church. Do keep on serving faithfully, uh, particularly if you are left carrying the can, if your husband is overseas or unconverted, or if your marriage is split up or something. Do what you need to do. Praise God. There's, there's no criticism of Deborah here in the passage, and it's not my, not my place to criticise you at all. But I know that you are with God on this. You long for the men in your life to step up to the plate I'm not scared to say it. And by the way, I did say I'd have one brief thing to say to you. So here's the very brief, but I think very important thing I have to say to the ladies. You listening, ladies? If you want to help the men in your life to step up, and can I say, as a man who was helped very much by his wife to step up, if you want to help the men in your life to step up, give them praise and give them space. Praise and space. It'll work much better than nagging or taking over. Go for... I really love the way you put the garbage out six months ago, or whatever, all right? <clears throat> I'll leave you ladies to think more about it in Wombat. Notice in the Bible study the, the word graciously in the last question. Do notice that word. Friends, here's the challenge. God is calling men to step up to the plate. So is there a man in the house? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you that there is a man in the house and his name is Jesus. We thank and praise you that he has stepped up to the plate and done all it takes to save us. We thank you for his bravery, his courage, his faithfulness, and that he would go to the cross alone for us, for all our sin and failure. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in the light of what we've read of Barak and Deborah, that you would help men, by the power of your spirit, to do what you have called them to do, to be the leaders, the loving servant leaders that you want them to be. We pray, Heavenly Father, for us all, men and women, that you help us to stand firm in Christ and serve and love him faithfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.